Hello, and welcome to the Tamra Talk Circular Podcast. In the last two episodes, we've been getting to know a bit about EPR, or Extended Producer Responsibility, which might say is at the heart of the circular economy when it comes to the circularity of consumer goods. But what do those who actually are directly affected by EPR think about more ambitious recycling and reuse targets? In today's episode, we will continue to look at EPR, but from another perspective, being that of the brand owner, the key party which is impacted by more stringent EPR legislation. I'm Mitu Moran, and our guest today is Dr. Katharina Marquardt, Head of Sustainability and Technical Communications, Dach Region at Procter & Gamble. In her 25 years at P&G, during much of which she was involved in regulatory affairs, Katharina has seen a lot of change when it comes to how consumers perceive packaging and how legislation is responding to their voices. And let's just say that their voices have become louder. Katharina, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Mitu. Let's start with an easy one. How would you define a circular economy? A circular economy is one where materials that have been of use for someone and for a certain purpose become the raw material for either the same or another product purpose. A lot of materials have the potential to be reused. And um, the only reason why this has not been done so far or not at large scale is the lack of systems that enable circularity. And I think we are at a point where it is imperative to build these systems if we want to maintain our freedom to operate. And partnerships are indispensable to achieve this. So, Katarina, the world of packaging is huge. And in fact, in a recent study by Smithers, it's been suggested that the total market value will increase by, well, they call it compound annual growth rate of 3.9% between 2021 and 2026. And if that happens, we are looking at a total market value of $1.22 trillion, trillion dollars in 2026. What do you think is driving this? People buy products, not packages. We must not forget this. People buy products because they have a certain need in life. Be it washing your clothes, be it shaving your face, brushing your teeth, washing your hair, but also maintaining an active lifestyle through good incontinence care, for example. And all those products come in packages. Packages ensure hygiene, formula integrity, stability over time, they enable correct dosing, and they make products available in store and online. That's a very interesting way to look at it, Katharina. So if I understand you correctly, as usual, it's the consumers who are pushing this increase in market size. But they are also demanding a greener and more sustainable solutions. As a brand owner, what are you experiencing from your own consumers? People are very much aware about the challenges of global warming, but also of pollution. And they want to trust in products that, do not, that they do not do harm to, to nature, to the environment. So the last Kantar Global Survey from 2021 actually shows, an, again, an index 107 growth 
of the eco-actives segment. So eco-actives in this survey mean people who are concerned about plastic waste, who take steps to eliminate waste, who feel responsible for and knowledgeable about sustainability, and whose purchase decisions are influenced by sustainability. And we talk about 38% of consumers here. So this is not niche anymore. And with such a mindset where people want to buy products that they can trust, a product's packaging is the first moment of truth. The first thing a consumer sees on shelf is not the shampoo, it's the shampoo bottle. So packaging has become the identity card for the sustainability or non-sustainability of a product. And this is unrelated to the numeric impact of packaging in a life cycle analysis. It's really a moment of truth for the consumer. And how is P&G responding to these demands? So P&G has some general principles on packaging plus category-specific goals and uh, strategies. And to name a few, design for recycling guidelines are implemented Our goal is to have 100% of packaging recyclable or reusable by 2030 worldwide. In my region, in Dach, so Germany, Austria, Switzerland, we are at a good 90%. Second, we want to save on virgin plastic massively. By 2030, we want to have reduced virgin plastic in packaging by 50% which translates into roughly 300,000 tons of saving of, uh, on virgin plastic per year. So our strategies to reach this goal are manifold because it's a big challenge. Reducing packaging is one, like introducing pouches instead of rigid bottles. We did that on Ariel, for instance, on Pantene, Head & Shoulders and Herbal Essences. Lightweighting is another route we constantly pursue when we uh, design new packages. We also may make intelligent use of carton where it makes sense and doesn't compromise on recyclability. Uh, Like, for instance, the switch on Gillette and Venus razors um, from blisters to carton throughout the entire lineup, for example, which we did in 2021. And then we increase the amount of recycled resin in our packaging constantly. We need a lot of recycled resin to uh, meet the demand for our broad portfolio, uh, which is why we engage beyond just buying PCR. We also invested R&D resources uh, to help develop new sorting technologies like digital watermarks. This was a project which has evolved under the lead of my colleague Jan de Belder and which is now taken on by the um, uh, European Brands Association, AIM, to scale it up and roll it out. And here you're talking about Holy Grail, is that correct? Well, digital watermarks is is Holy Grail. Okay, and that's the project you're referring to, Mm -hmm. correct? Okay, so now enter EPR. I'm guessing the biggest impact for brand owners like yourselves from new legislation in the EU as it relates to recycled content. Would you agree? Recycled content is one, I would agree. And we are ready to take our responsibility in this area. Um, Bottles with 100% PCR in our portfolio span from fabric softeners, Lenore, uh, to shampoos, 
Herbal Essences, Pantene, Two-Handish, Fairy, for instance, to name a few. Um, but we also use recycled resin in products, like in Swiffer or in Meister Proper Sheets. Um, for instance, in the uh, housing of these long-lasting Febreze air fresheners, in the handles of razors, etc. Um, and at our size, we need a lot of quality PCR. I already said that. So, Katharina, I'm sorry to run, interrupt you. Can you explain what PCR is meant? Yes, with pleasure. So PCR stands for post-consumer recycled resin or post-consumer recyclate. It's a term uh, to make clear that the material we are using has had a product purpose before. So I said that our, at our size, we need a lot of quality PCR, post-consumer recycled uh, material and when we we are talking rules and regulations right so i think standards are needed really when we look back in history every market in history has prospered when standards have been implemented when people could be sure that a kilogram is always a kilogram um, that an electrical device will work with 220 watt um, and i think if we want to come to a circular economy Material specifications for PCR have to be agreed on by all parties of the value chain so that manufacturers can be sure a recycled resin of a specification X can be used safely and compliantly for skincare product, for example, um, or um, recycled resin with specification Y can be used for a detergent. Um, and this is why we have engaged in COSPA talks. So cosmetic packaging toxicology, which is a science-driven project where a lot of toxicologists and packaging experts join forces and share their knowledge to develop these specifications to then later on present to the regulator for adaption. So Katarina, you've just spoken about um, uh, setting standards. And oddly enough, before we started talking this afternoon, I was reading some literature where I found um, that there seems to be some discrepancies, for lack of a better word, lack of harmonization across borders on what, for example, recycled content is, what is considered a product, what is considered packaging. Is this a challenge that, that P&G also faces? And, and if it is, how are you dealing with it? So the opportunities of a circular economy are manifold and so are the challenges, you're, you're right. And our biggest pain point as a company producing and marketing in many countries and in, in entire Europe are the differences in national legislation. And um, I, I talk about different and sometimes really divergent regulations, right? So often these regulatory initiatives are well-intended. You mentioned uh, recycled content, Uh, so let's assume now several countries work on definitions because they want to incentivize uh, recycled content and products. Uh, and then, then there are different definitions about what counts as post-consumer recycled resin. And we already see that, right? Some say there is an ISO norm. Great. Let's go for it. 
Some say, well, it must come only come from consumers' homes, otherwise it doesn't count. And then there are ones who, uh, those who say, well, it has to be collected in the municipal solid waste bins and not via a deposit scheme because in order to prevent downcycling. And again, others say only closed group recycling is really recycling. So when an aerial bottle becomes again an aerial bottle. And there are pros and cons for every one of these positions. But if every country does it his way, this will kill an efficient market for secondary raw materials. And this is why it's our biggest pain point. So what we actually do is we, we try to, uh, to work on EU level um, to, to, get, to get at least in the EU a harmonized, uh, a harmonized system. I think there are good ways to do that. And I think in general, people are responsive uh, when you explain that actually a circular economy can only work in the European economy system. And there seems to be some movement in that, uh, in the direction of harmonization. I think the, the situation is such that people are taking this seriously. The policymakers are taking this seriously and are trying to work together towards a common goal, maybe even more so than before. Yes, I do see a common, the, 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 the will and the wish to work in partnerships for the common goal. It's not done yet, but, but I, see, I clearly see the motivation. <laughs> okay, and this, this leads me into my second question. Like I said before, you've been involved with this sort of work for over 25 years now. And maybe you'd agree that there's never been so much that's happening, and all at the same time, in terms of transitioning to a circular economy in many aspects. Do you think things are happening fast enough? Hmm. Taking into account the global challenge of staying within planetary boundaries, it can't be fast enough. But let me also add that I have seen an enormous change potential in the industry being unleashed in, in, in recent years. In our company and other companies, change is not only being talked, it is done. And what I like in today's economic environment are the two big, big drivers for change. One is innovation and the other one is partnerships. As you rightly pointed out in the beginning, I work in this industry for, well, quite some time. <laughs> Um, and I have not seen this level of working in partnerships against the common goal before. Companies along the value chain partner to enable true circularity. Retailers and manufacturers cooperate to address and impact consumer behavior. And even competing companies work jointly on the common goal of sustainability by, let's say, developing a common eco-scoring framework, for example. There has never been a better time to work on sustainability. So that sounds very promising, a collaborative effort indeed. So maybe one last question, Katharina. We're talking about collaboration, but each and every one of us have a role to play in transitioning to a circular economy. And I was just wondering if you could share with us what you do individually, your part in transforming to a circular economy. One has to stay true to one's own words, of course. So I do take care of consuming responsibly, 
of separating my waste, of repurposing old clothes and taking the bike more often. And I try to also teach my kids that there's more than a price tag on, on goods, that there is a value in it. However, I think my biggest impact lies indeed in working with P&G, where I do my humble part of catalyzing change. Katharina, thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts today and your perspectives from a brand owner. Thank you, me too. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating.